and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our God and making us your children. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who um, you sent to be the propitiation for our sin. Father, we are so needy. We're so needy for you to continue to help us to understand and embrace and grasp the amazing reality of what you've done for us at the cross and to understand how to live that out every minute of every day. Father, thank you that you've given us your word, you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you've placed us in your body. I pray that this time, this morning, where we are in your word together, would be fruitful. Oh, Lord, let your spirit come and teach us what you want us to know. Help us to grasp it. Lord, help us to be alert and attentive and teachable and soft that we might get the full benefit of what you have for us this morning. God, thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so good to be here with you. Um, So this morning, because we have a very full lesson, we actually will talk more about the disciplines when we get to our applications. So we will take more time on our disciplines next week on our Titus 2 lesson, but we are going to just jump right in. And I want to let you know the sources for this lesson are a little different than some of the lessons. Many of the Wellspring lessons are based on build lessons that uh, Scott did for the men in build. But most of this lesson is based on some sermons that Scott did in 2004. And if you want to go to the website and find those, I had trouble finding them, so I'm going to tell you how to find them. Um, If you go to the church website, click on sermons, and then select all sermons, and then in the search bar, type in saving and savoring. You'll get a series of five sermons that he did on singleness and marriage. Um, You also... If you were here when he taught through Ephesians, you'll hear some things that probably sound familiar from that, and you can also find those on the church website under sermons. Go to series, then go to Ephesians, and look at the sermons in Ephesians 5 if you're interested in that. And then um, finally, a really helpful resource um, for the, particularly the sections talking about bearing God's image in seasons of singleness is Carolyn McCulley. And she's an older, no, she's not older, she's my age. Um, <laughs> uh, she's a, a single woman, she's never been married, and she is just very um, articulate in, in helping offer biblical thinking and gospel-centered shepherding regarding some of the challenges and some of the blessings and opportunities associated with seasons of singleness. So I have, you'll hear me make liberal use of her help. Um, so if you want to find more free resources, Google her name or Google biblical femininity, and she'll probably pop right up at the top of the list. Okay. Well, last time, Jamie helped us see that God has created us with an identity as women. It's an identity that's distinct from the identity he's given men, and it's designed by him. Eve was fully a woman before God ever brought her to Adam. Uh, Carolyn McCulley writes this. um, We are feminine, and remember Jamie reminded us that doesn't just mean that we like pink. It means that we embrace God's design for women, the biblical design for women. We are feminine from the moment we are conceived because that's God's design. 
and he has a purpose for our femininity throughout the various seasons of our lives. Through those seasons, we have a variety of roles, and sometimes we'll be single, and sometimes we may be married. So we all need to understand God's design for both of those seasons. We need to understand God's design for singleness so that we can appreciate singleness and display his image well in seasons of singleness. And we can make the most of the opportunities that are unique to that season. Understanding God's design also helps us to appreciate and encourage others who are in that season. Our children, our sisters in Christ, single parents. Um, So all of us, as members of the same body of Christ, better care for and appreciate one another. We also all need to understand God's design for displaying his image in marriage, so that the way we think about marriage and talk about marriage and live out our marriages makes much of God's design for marriage. If we're single, we need to know what God has for us if he does bring marriage to us. We need to know what God's word says so that we can encourage grown children in their marriages. We need to help friends esteem marriage and think biblically about marriage. Another thing to consider is that none of us know how long we'll be single or how long we'll be married. My grandma died last year. She was almost 101 years old. She was married for 53 years. She was the quintessential farm wife. But that meant that she spent almost 48 years of her life being single. That's older than I am. (laughs) Now, on average, women live seven years longer than men. Many of us will be widows. Even if we are married now, we are in a temporary, earthly condition. There's no human marriage in heaven. Human marriage is a shadow of the eternal marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. And all believers participate in that marriage. But right now, we honor and adore our Savior as we embrace his design for women in each season. And as we encourage one another to do the same. So we're going to start with God's purpose for life. Why did he make us? Why did he save us? Go ahead and turn to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. We're at number one on the outline, man created in God's image. And just as we did with biblical womanhood, we're going to start all the way back at creation in Genesis 1 and trace God's design through his word into the New Testament. Now Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, just as an aside, did you see that when he says man, that man was created male and female? So when we see man here, we're talking about a man and a woman. But there are two important points that we need to see from these verses. The first is that God created man, male and female, in his own image. And the second thing that we need to see is that God gives us a glimpse of what the image of God is. You'll notice in verse 26, he uses the plural pronoun, our, to refer to himself. And then in verse 27, very next verse, he refers to himself with the singular pronoun, his. 
So right here, in the very first chapter of Genesis, God is hinting that there's this unity and trinity in the Godhead. There's three in one, that there's a seamless unity within the Godhead. And man is created in that image. Somehow, this seamless, invisible unity of the Godhead is made visible in man. That was God's purpose, for man to display his image, displaying in some way God's seamless unity. But Genesis doesn't tell us any more about what about that unity is actually the image of God. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 5. This is number two on the outline. And you'll remember last time we saw that sin entered the world in Genesis 3. The serpent came. Eve fell for the temptation. She was turned into a self-grasper. Remember that? Then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we all bear evidence of that, right? Every man ever since then has been plagued by that. Now, Genesis 5 shows the impact that the fall had on man's ability to bear God's image. So if you look at the second part of verse 1, it says, In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's the same thing we saw in Genesis 1.26, that God made man in his own image. But now look at how that's different than the second part of verse 3, where it says, He, talking about Adam, became a father of a son in his own likeness according to his image. Did you see the difference there? In verse 1, God created man in the likeness of God. But in verse 3, Adam became the father of a son in his likeness, in Adam's likeness, according to Adam's image. Because of the sin that entered the world in Genesis 3, Adam was unable to pass on um, the image of God in which he'd been correct. Created. He could only pass on a corrupted image of God to his son, Seth. So man's ability to bear God's image is all but destroyed because of sin, and we're still left wondering more than ever, what is the image of God? Well, that brings us to number three on the outline. And again, this is some review from last time. Um, We saw last time that Jesus came perfectly bearing God's image. We saw that in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. And we saw that Jesus is the image of God. So we looked at him to understand what God's image is. And we found that Jesus is a servant. The image of God is that of serving. Not grasping for yourself, but of giving yourself away like a slave does. It's surrendering yourself. So in Genesis 1, we saw seamless unity. And in Jesus, we see self-giving love. So we can describe the image of God as a seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. You're going to hear those words a lot today. The image of God is one of seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. The unity is so interconnected that they can be spoken of as one because there's this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead. That's what God created us to reveal about himself. And only because of our perfect Jesus do we understand that. 
And the beauty and the power of the gospel is that the ability for us to bear God's image is restored in Christ. We'll go ahead and turn to Romans 8.29. This is number four on the outline. Women in Christ restored to God's image. Romans 8.29 shows God's intent to restore the believer to bearing God's image. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So God predestined us, believer, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be restored to being an image bearer of God. Colossians 3.10 makes the same point when it says that we've put on the new self who is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. That is what happens when a life is impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Christ, she's forgiven. She is made a new creation. She is freed from sin's power. And she's renewed into being an image bearer of God. She's restored to displaying the self-giving, self-emptying, serving love of Christ. She's a slave who joyfully gives herself away for the sake of her Savior. It's what we see in Jesus. So, we were created to bear God's image, but sin corrupted God's image in us. And then Christ came and perfectly bore God's image. And he restores us to God's image, through bearing God's image, through a relationship with himself. Therefore, The greatest relationship is that which we have with Jesus. That is the great relationship. That is what we are to be most concerned with. This is the relationship that shapes our hearts to be something beautiful to our Creator. This is where Scripture's emphasis lies. In fact, when we find ourselves thinking of marriage, and singleness as vastly divergent paths for women, that is evidence that we actually are probably letting some of that feminist thinking creep in. God's word speaks clearly about the kind of women we are to be as those who bear his image. And whether we're married or not, it's just the circumstances in which we live that out. Even if we are satisfied in marriage, That's a temporary relationship. Our marriage is not, and it must not be, the greatest relationship in our lives. Our tendency is to think, well, Jesus is great, but, you know, really, I need some other relationship to satisfy me. If I'm single, I might think, you know, I I really want to go find that relationship. I want to pursue that relationship. And if I'm married, I may think, boy, I really need my husband and my kids to satisfy me. We think we have this need, and the whole time we're thinking this way, and we're pursuing this need in a human relationship, we're completely missing the point that that need was meant to be satisfied and can only be satisfied by that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Now, I found this in an article by Carolyn McCulley. She found it in a secular women's magazine. And I just think it's really interesting. I I enjoyed this. It gives us a a good perspective. 
And it says, despite the conventional wisdom, being married boosts happiness only one-tenth of a point on an 11-point scale. That would be less than 1%. And most people are no more satisfied with life after marriage than they were before. Although happiness rises after exchanging vows, most people return to their pre-marriage level within (laughs) two years. The same is true for people who win the lottery. Now, she comments comments on this by saying, we shouldn't be surprised. This mainstream study only confirms what we read throughout the Bible. God has designed us to find our ultimate fulfillment in him, not in anything or anyone that he has created. Scott Maxwell put it this way. You have it in your notes. The happiest, most satisfied people are those pursuing Jesus aggressively, passionately, supremely, constantly and some of them are single some of them are married this is not an issue of marriage or singleness is it this is an issue about our heart this is about worship genuine love for Christ drives me to worship him and trust him for everything that's what Christ has called us to and enables us to do through our relationship with him through keeping that relationship first That's why we must never skip over discipline one. That is how we cultivate this greatest relationship, the relationship with the only one who truly knows us inside and out, who truly loves us, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who offers us an intimacy and a security and a hope that extends far beyond anything this world will ever offer. Prayerfully shepherding our hearts toward God through the word of God is how we participate in the renewal in bearing the image of God so that we can be more concerned with loving and serving others than we are with how they are satisfying us. So what does that mean specifically for bearing God's image in seasons of singleness? I'll turn over to John 17. We're at 5a on the outline. Now remember, the image of God is one of seamless unity cemented with self-giving love. And that's exactly what Jesus prayed for on his last night with his disciples. Now just listen to his heart here. We're going to begin reading in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, it's us. It's the church. We are the ones who have believed in Jesus through the words of his apostles. So verse 21, that they may all be one. How? Even as you, um, let's see. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He prays that we'd be one so that others would believe in Jesus. Verse 22, the glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. 
Do you see what Christ prayed for us? That we'd be one, just like the Father and the Son are one. A oneness that Jesus describes as being in one another. You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is a call to us as the body of Christ. No one is exempt. There is too much at stake. Jesus here is on his way to the cross. This is the night before his crucifixion. And he's pouring out to his, his heart to the Father, asking that we would be one, so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves us like he loves the Son. That is pointing right to the gospel, isn't it? No less than the gospel is at stake in our oneness with one another in the body of Christ. We may have seasons of singleness, but as believers, we are never, ever called to isolation. We need to look no farther than Jesus himself to see that meaningful relationships were a source of strength and companionship in fulfilling his ministry. Even when he was facing the cross, when he went to pray, right after this prayer that's recorded in John 17, he asked his closest friends, married men and single men, to join him. That's not to say it's always easy to be single. It's not always easy to be married, is it? And we will talk about shepherding our hearts through some of the challenges that different seasons bring. But always, we need to start with God's word. That's, that way we're starting with a foundation of truth, and we're looking to our creator and our designer to understand his purposes for the seasons that we're in. Well, that brings us to 5B on our outline. And I want to read you two verses, and I want to see if uh, you think these go together. Genesis 2.18 says, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. In 1 Corinthians 7.7, Paul writes, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to his singleness. So which is it? Is it good or is it not good for man to be alone? Well, John Piper helps explain this by pointing out that there were two very significant events between Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 7. Genesis 2.18 was before the fall. Um, And it was also before the cross. So apparently, because of these two events, they had an impact on the natural order that existed in Genesis 2, so that now, in some circumstances, it actually is good. It's better for a man to be alone in the sense that he doesn't marry. Paul thought that it was better for him to be alone not and not to marry because it enabled him to more faithfully fulfill the ministry God had given him. So does that make sense? In a pre-fall world, it was not good for man to be alone. But now after the fall and after the cross, sometimes it is good. And knowing that God works all things for good to those who love him, Romans 8:28. We know that when we are single, it's good. And when we're married, it's good. Because, ultimately, God is at work to make us more like Christ. Not necessarily to give us what we want, to make us happy, make us comfortable or more secure, to give us that much-coveted, pain-free life, but to make us more like 
our Savior, to continue to restore us in his image. Remember, we're image bearers, his image bearers. We get to display his seamless unity and self-giving love. Well, let's move on to C on the outline. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says some interesting things here. Uh, 5C on the outline is about the gift of singleness, and there can be some confusion about this. So let's read in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And by that he meant it's good not to marry. In the culture of the day, a man would literally not have touched a woman that he wasn't married to. And Paul's saying it's good not to marry. In verses 2 through 5, he talks about marriage, but then in verse 6, he says, but this I say by way of concession not of command. Paul wants to be clear that he's not commanding that anyone has to get married. He underscores that with verse 7. We already read this, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another that. So did you catch that? Paul recognizes each man has his own gift. And what's the context? What gifts might he be referring to? Well, he's talking about singleness and marriage. Paul says that they are each a gift. Obviously, marriage and singleness are not the same as spiritual gifts in the sense that they're given by the Holy Spirit at conversion. They don't occur in the list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or Ephesians 4. But any time that we are single... That season, however long it lasts, is God-given. And the Greek word for gift here is charisma. And the root of that word, charis, means grace. Singleness is a demonstration of God's grace. Now, when we give gifts, we might have all kinds of motives and concerns. We might be concerned with what the other person will think or how much it costs. Even when we're the real gift-giving type and we never have trouble um, giving with the right motives, we might still get stuck with figuring out what the right gift is for somebody. But see, God is not like that. His gifts display himself perfectly. They're a demonstration of his grace. And they are always perfect for enabling us to display his image individually and as the body of Christ. Singleness is a gift for whatever season we possess it. That doesn't mean that it won't ever be hard, but we can trust the loving hand that gives the gift to sustain us and to satisfy us with his abundant mercies every single day. Now, hearing that singleness is a gift might kind of take you by surprise. It might be even a little bit hard to swallow. So I just want to take one more pass at it. Again, I'm sharing something I read from Carolyn McCulley. She explains the Greek word used for gift, charisma, as a gracious endowment, where the emphasis lies on the grace involved in being so gifted. And then she writes, we need to understand what kind of gift we're talking about when we discuss the gift of singleness. It's not a gift that we have to spend time trying to identify and even worrying that we may have forever. If we're single today, we have the gracious gift of singleness today. Not necessarily forever, but we do have it today. How we may feel about it, do I like being single? 
do I desire marriage instead, isn't part of the equation. The emphasis here is on a gracious God who gives good gifts and ultimately on his purpose for giving them. This gift is not an activity or a role. It's not something you go do. But it's a blessing like the free gift, the charisma of eternal life in Romans 5.15 that's given to us without any merit of our own. Whether we're married or single, it's a demonstration of God's grace to us. His means for us to display his image of unity and self-giving love with his body in that season of life. So what are some of the unique ways that the gift of singleness is designed to display his image? What are the privileges of singleness? Well, let's stay in 1 Corinthians 7 and look at verse 34. The woman who is unmarried, now this would be a woman who used to be married, and the virgin, that would be a woman who's never been married, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. For one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, did you hear what he said about the single woman in Christ? Verse 34, she's concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in body and spirit. And Paul says that this is to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, does this mean a married woman can't be concerned about the things of the Lord? Of course not. And it doesn't mean a single woman shouldn't desire to be married. Certainly not. But when we're single... We have unique opportunities in those areas if we're shepherding our hearts to be concerned with the things of the Lord. If we're concerned with holiness, then we can use our unique availability for undistracted devotion to our Savior. Now again, it's not wrong to desire marriage. That's a good desire, especially if you desire to display God's image in that marriage. But God may have something different for you other than what you desire. Again, that desire isn't wrong, but we have to be careful because it can become an idol. It can become a temptation to let that desire become an excuse for manipulating our circumstances, perhaps, to fulfill that desire. Perhaps through dating an unbeliever, maybe compromising purity. When we do those things, it reveals a lack of contentment and trust in our good God. So daily, we need to entrust our desires to him. Thank him for his good design for this season of your life, whatever it is. And then joyfully pursue undistracted devotion to our Savior. So we've taken a look at what God's word has to say about um, how fundamental our relationship with the body of Christ is in displaying his image to the world. And we've seen that when we're single, it's a gift and it's a privilege. But all that being said... Nonetheless, we don't always view singleness as a gift or a privilege. 
sometimes it maybe just doesn't feel all that inspiring to realize that God's plan is to use some of us as women without being a wife, without being a mom. It can be hard, lonely, sometimes awkward, painful. There are seasons of grief caused by hopes deferred. And sometimes when we're struggling, it can be hard to know, is it okay to grieve or am I just feeling sorry for myself? Have I given way to self-pity? Carolyn McCulley, again, is really helpful, and she says this in answer to that question. She says, the most telling difference between self-pity and grief is our attitude toward God in the loss. It is a loss to have dreams deferred or die. Marriage seems so commonplace that to remain single when you desire otherwise truly can be a form of suffering. While those who grieve for a tangible loss, perhaps the death of a loved one, seem to work through it within a defined season, there's a circular aspect to mourning extended singleness. We may do well from one holiday to the next, but the cumulative effect of facing yet another Valentine's Day or Thanksgiving, or Christmas alone can trigger the grief once again. Now, these holidays can trigger grief um, for those who've lost a loved one, but that grieving seems to diminish over time while it can actually increase for those with deferred hopes. Yet, the Lord would want to interrupt that pattern of mourning with the joy that overflows to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she references Romans 15, 13. How is that possible? Let's consider again the difference between grief and self-pity. Self-pity turns our gaze inward, focusing only on ourselves. It says, I'm worth so much more. Why has this been withheld? It's a response of pride. Therefore, it's accompanied by an inconsolable, demanding spirit that fuels this emotion Self-pity leads us to assume the worst. Lord, don't you care about me? True Christian grief, on the other hand, like Jeremiah did in Lamentations 3, says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. She goes on to say we care well for one another when we listen compassionately to the struggles and ask wise questions to expose what we really believe about God and ourselves, if the way we're thinking reveals what we say we believe about God, and then we remind one another what's true because of the cross and the reality of what lies ahead for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she references 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 there. The bottom line is this. If the wonderful, glorious promises of heaven and all that has been secured for us in the manifold mercy found at the cross doesn't penetrate the fog of our grief, we can be sure that self-pity has hardened our hearts. 
She concludes by saying, there is a vast difference between being told to get over it and being equipped with the truth that helps us vanquish both self-pity and grief. And I have to say, if I, I've read a lot of her articles and um, some portions of her books, and I saw how she responded over and over to the challenges of singleness by pointing to the character of God and the word of God and to meeting with God in prayer and the gospel and the eternal hope that believers have. I kept thinking, you know, that's no different for me. There's nothing unique about being single who needs that kind of encouragement, is there? See, hard shepherding is hard shepherding. Our circumstances may change, but the answer doesn't. Whatever our circumstances, learning to trust God, learning to find our contentment in him, takes practice. It's something we have to learn, and it's something we can help one another learn. So let's go ahead and look at F then. Back in 1 Corinthians 7.34, we saw that Paul wanted the church to value the privilege of singleness in order to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And scripture provides a great cloud of witnesses who live this out. And there's a lot of variety. God does not have a cookie cutter for what singleness is supposed to look like. Ruth was devoted to her mother-in-law. And she did hard physical labor in order to meet her physical, to help provide for her physical needs. And then you'll see the Proverbs 31 woman. And you may be surprised to see her on here. And I was surprised too at first. But then again, I read something out of Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye? That's one of Carolyn McCulley's books. And she wrote this. I just thought this was amazing. It says, Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10, is an acrostic. That means each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's attributed to the mother of King Lemuel, who instructed her young son through this memory game, both to learn the alphabet and to learn the qualities of a virtuous wife. In other words, she wanted this future ruler to know by heart what to look for in a single woman to ensure that he'd find someone who would make an excellent wife. It's true that the role described is in the passage is that of a wife, but her godly, noble character is what all women, women should cultivate. Isn't that interesting? I had never thought of it that way before. I hope that's encouraging. Uh, you can see Tabitha on your list. She's in Acts 9. She abounded with kind, charitable deeds and had a reputation for making clothes for widows. Uh, Lydia, you find her in Acts 16. She was the first convert in Europe. She was a successful businesswoman. She served. She extended hospitality to the body of Christ and probably put herself and her household in harm's way um, in opening up her house to people like Paul, who everybody wanted to persecute. Um, Anna, we find in Luke 2, she was at the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to dedicate him, and we find that she had been a widow for many years and had devoted her life to prayer, fasting, thankfulness, and speaking to others about Jesus. Mary Magdalene is prominent in the gospel narratives. She was at the crucifixion. She was at the burial. She was the first one to see our risen Lord. The Lord sent her back to tell the disciples that he was alive. And she was also generous with her financial resources, 
Remember that. If you are in a place where you are working in the professional world and the Lord is giving you financial means, that's one way you get to participate in the body of Christ is, is through giving. Mary and Martha, we have a whole lesson on them in a, a couple lessons from now. But they were two sisters who lived with their brother and they were noted for the hospitality that they showed to Jesus. So amongst women in scripture, there is just a broad variety of resources, economic status, abilities, backgrounds, and circumstances. Last time you got the handout on women in the Bible, and that's just a great resource. You just want to familiarize yourself more with um, how God has used women. And you see them in their glory, and you see them in their sin, but... Um, it can just be encouraging to realize you don't have to go find that cookie cutter and then squish yourself into it. You need to be the woman God has made you to be for his glory, displaying his image in that. As a woman of God, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, God has placed you there to show and tell the goodness of his design for women and more than that, the goodness of his salvation. And I just want to praise God because that is what I see in most of you. That is the testimony of many, many women at Grace Bible Church, and I just praise God that his gospel is producing that in you. So let's take a quick look at the some specific implications of God's design for us to bear his image in seasons of singleness. And you'll actually see that you have a separate handout with these written out. Um, it's on a separate sheet, the front page of the separate sheet, so it might just spare you having to try to jot down so much. But we're going to try to group these in, in terms of the wellspring disciplines. In terms of uh, discipline number one, the heart, God's design calls for ongoing renewal of our minds, shepherding our hearts with the truth of God's word, drawing near to God himself, preaching the gospel to ourselves, confessing sin, remembering our identity in Christ, fueling that undistracted devotion to the Lord. Number two, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 7.34, it elevates personal purity and holiness in body and spirit. In terms of discipline two, the home, God's design strengthens our commitment to growing in unity, love, and service with those in our home and family. Number four, it encourages hospitality and ministry in our home, inviting others in. See, Singleness is no reason not to be vesting yourself in nurturing and shepherding and reaching out. Um, I read some interesting ideas even for being creative in this. Sometimes, particularly if you live alone, hospitality can just be logistically challenging because you're trying to take care of everything in the kitchen and you're trying to be the hostess and, and take care of all your guests. And so, you know, perhaps joining with another woman and, and either... Uh, inviting people together or trading off, serving one another. One woman can kind of help in the kitchen while the other one is uh, enjoying some hospitality with some of her friends and then switch off and, and serve one another. The other one can take care of more of the uh, kitchen responsibilities and the other one can be the hostess. Or, or you can make it simple and, and order pizza or ask people to bring food. There's ways to get away some, around some of those challenges. But um, I know that I've been really blessed by hospitality from single women as well as married women. 
Um, number five, God's design humbles the single woman to seek the wisdom and protection of Christian parents, church leaders, maybe elders or small group leaders, um, and perhaps also older women in the church. See, more than likely, as a single woman, you may have more opportunities to actually shine the light of Christ in the world than a woman who is not working outside the home. Married women could be outside the home as well. And so you have more opportunity, perhaps, to testify to what God has done in your life. But it also means you have that much more exposure and vulnerability to the world's influence and the Kool-Aid that's out there, you know, that just wants to soak you and, and grab your heart. And so um, these leaders and authorities that God has placed in our lives can just be really helpful to protect us and to help us see um, areas that, that we can't see in ourselves, areas of our thinking where perhaps we've taken in some, some worldly thinking that, that we're not recognizing. Um, okay, in terms of discipline three, then ministry, God's design underscores the importance of relationships with the body of Christ, fellowship, service, other expressions of the New Testament one another's. In particular, it keeps small group involvement a priority. It is just a great place to care for others as well as to be cared for spiritually and otherwise. Um, Oftentimes, uh, there have been really uh, strong relationships that build up the body formed as uh, some of the single women in our church have, have built relationships maybe with one family or two families in particular and they'll babysit for that family perhaps and and then the benefit just goes both ways as um, sometimes that family can you know there's, there's been times when our kids were younger and, and single would come over and they'd meet with our girls but then they'd stay for dinner and they just loved being around a family because they were living you know on campus and they, they didn't have family life because their family lived out of state um, and so it's just, it's just a really sweet time to fellowship where we are being intentional about building relationships with people who are in different seasons. Okay. Um, number seven, God's design challenges her to prayerfully and intentionally live out biblical femininity, godliness, holiness, industriousness, a quiet and gentle servant's heart in every sphere of influence, home, school, work, church, living out Philippians 2, 14 through 16, where it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. See, these implications clearly are not for single women alone. As women, it should be a joy to know that God made us to be women, and he's orchestrating every season of our lives um, to make us more like himself and to use us to display his gospel to the world. So um, I'd like to you know, turn to the back of your notes. I think that there's a quote there from Tozier. See it there? And it says, when I have God for my treasure, I have all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied me, or if I'm allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so timbered that they will never be necessary to my happiness. Or if I may, must see them go one after another, I will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things I have in one, 
all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever I may lose, I have actually lost nothing, for I now have it all in one and have it purely, legitimately, and forever. May we plead with God that that would increasingly be true of us. So we covered the fact that we were created in the image of God and that sin corrupted our ability to display that image, but Jesus is the image of God, this image of God that a seamless unity cemented in self-giving love, and through the gospel, we're restored to being God's image bearers. So we saw that the greatest relationship is that which we have with Jesus. And so before our break, then we finished talking about bearing God's image in seasons of singleness. And that brings us to number six on the outline. Marriage presents us another stage for displaying God's image. And we've already seen how important our relationship with the body of Christ is. And I hope that as we've seen that, that it's becoming more and more clear that we all need to understand God's design for different seasons, not just the season that we're in. Um, We're not separate little compartments. We're not islands. We're not isolated. But we're a member of a body. We're all members of a body, the body of Christ. And that's why it's important we understand his his design for all the different seasons he places us in. So we're going to go back to Genesis again and take a look at what God's word says about bearing his image in marriage. Now we already took a look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where we saw that God, was cre- that God created man in his image, male and female. But to understand how marriage ties in with that, we're going to take a look at Genesis 2. Now if you remember when Smedley taught through Genesis last summer, uh, Genesis 2 is not a different account of creation. Rather, in Genesis 1, we have a general account of how everything was created in six days. And beginning in Genesis 2-4, we're looking back at that in greater detail with more specifics on how the man and the woman came to be and what God's heart was in bringing the woman to the man. Now remember again, this is before the fall, and that's significant. Um, God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan. um, And we've already seen that in Christ... We bear his image through our relationship with him and through unity with the church. But to understand God's original design for marriage, we're going to take a look at Genesis 2.18. And it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Now, if you remember from Genesis 1, every time God created, he pronounced that it was good. And this is still before the fall. So what could possibly not be good? Well, verse 18 says it was not good for the man to be alone. We touched on that earlier. It says that he needs a helper suitable to him. And what does he need help with? Well, he needs one who will help him fulfill God's purpose for him. Adam needed help radiating the image of God, radiating God's seamless unity and self-giving love. In other words, we were just not going to see that image in Adam as clearly unless there was someone else. Now, before the fall, God's image required a man and a woman to express it, so God created the woman. Now, watch how God provided a helper to Adam in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. See, the woman didn't come from the ground. She didn't come from any place else. She came right out of the very side of Adam. 
Now, why would that be significant? That God would take a piece of the man, go form her into a woman, and then bring her back to the man. Well, it's because of unity. Marriage surpasses anything that the animals could offer Adam in image bearing. There was no unity between Adam and the animals. There's divergence, dissimilarity between him and the animals. But the woman is suitable to live in unity with the man because she came right out of his body. First, Adam was created in God's image, and he was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. But that all failed miserably in sin, so Jesus, God's son, who is called the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45, who is the image of God, came, and God gave him a bride. Revelation 21.9 talks about the bride of the lamb. That's the church to help Jesus display his image everywhere. Do you see the parallel there between Adam and Jesus? We need to understand this because this is God's big idea of what he's doing in the world. He is committed to displaying his image of seamless unity, cemented with self-giving love to the ends of the earth. We saw some of that in John 17. So Jesus with his people... The way he relates to us and the way we relate to him displays the image of God. And all of that is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 5. Go ahead and turn there with me. Paul used this relationship between Christ and the church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, none of us are in perfect marriages, right? Marriage can be difficult. But there is a bigger message that we need to understand. So read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church or the body or to pronouns referring to the church in the midst of this teaching about marriage. All right, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, Paul just can't stop from thinking about the church as he talks about marriage. Verse 28, so husbands are also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, the mystery there is not the husband and wife relationship. It's the church and Jesus. That is a mysterious unity. But verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 
So Paul is dealing with marriage, and we find that the whole point in dealing with marriage is to highlight the church's relationship with Jesus. Eight times in 12 verses, 12 verses that are on marriage, eight times Paul's talking about the church. He wants to show how there is this incredible relationship between the bride and her husband, Jesus. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. And that is to be unfolded in our marriages if we are married and we love Christ. Or if God brings us a husband someday. That's what he wants to unfold to the world through our marriage. Marriage is so much bigger than we tend to think it is, isn't it? See, we can get caught up in thinking it's about me and it's about him and it's about life together and companionship and security and happiness. And, you know, all that's true to some degree, but we have to understand that God has so much more in mind than our happiness. He has linked marriage to declaring his greatness. As believers, our marriage is a subset of what God wants to display about himself. Marriage carries with it the incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing the relationship that Christ has with his church. So what does that mean for a wife, whether we are one now or we desire to be, or we're encouraging other women in their marriages? What role does a wife play in marriage that, so that God's image is displayed in that marriage? Well, Scott Maxwell summarized it this way. He said, the seamless relationship requires simple roles. Now, in Ephesians 5.22, we read, wives be subject to your own husbands. And we're going to come back and unpack that more in a minute. But Scott Maxwell made a point about this that I thought was actually really helpful and could be easy to miss. And that is that this is really encouraging. Be subject to your own husbands. Because we could go to a Christian bookstore and we could look in the marriage section and we could find dozens of books, right? And we could find list after list after list of all the things we have to remember about marriage. And Paul just makes it so simple. He says, wives, it's one thing and it's everything. Submit to your husband. Now, I hope that we all understand that scripture never tells us to submit um, if our husband is asking us to sin. But even that would need to be handled with an attitude of respect. And we will talk more about submission next time in our Titus 2 lesson. But it's clear. We do need to submit to our husbands to give our lives in service. It's not easy to do, but it's clear. In the sense that there aren't 20 things, there's one thing. And that one thing is to submit to our husbands. Because we have the honor and the calling of selflessly portraying the submissive church. Selflessly, because that is the image of God in Christ. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. That's what service is. It's giving yourself away. Christ gave himself away. And wives, we selflessly give away ourselves in submission. We portray the submissive church. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 5.22 and dig into that a little bit more. Again, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the next thing I want you to notice here is that the verb, if you have an NASB, the verb is in italic. 
And that means that it was added by the translators for clarity. It's accurate, but the, in Greek, the verb is actually up in verse 21. But Paul begins his thought here even before that in verse 18. So let's read Ephesians 5.18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But, now here's the command, be filled with the Spirit of God. And then he continues to unfold in verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. Um, He unfolds and explains what it actually means to be filled with the Spirit of God. He describes what that looks like. So when we get down to verse 22, Paul is continuing to explain that. And we see that fullness of spirit means submissiveness to our husbands. When we are full of the spirit of God, the last thing we want to do is get ourselves up on a pedestal and say, hey, you come serve me. That's not what being filled with the spirit of God looks like. Jesus didn't come to be served. And as we are in him and as his spirit fills us, we find ourselves getting low and wrapping that towel around ourselves and washing one another's feet like our servant Savior Jesus did on his way to the cross. Now look at verse 22 one more time. And this time notice how it ends. We're submissive to our husbands as we are to the Lord. Paul immediately takes this horizontal submissiveness and he says it has to be something just like our submissiveness this way. Our submissiveness to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. The head is the one who sends the signals to the body, and when everything is going as designed, then the body is responsive to that leadership. Now, verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, can you imagine the church saying, Oh, that's what Jesus wants? Well, We've got a different plan this time. That's a bad place to be. We wouldn't want to see that in our church, and we shouldn't be any more content to think that way towards the leadership of our husbands. Now, remember what we learned in the biblical womanhood lesson that Jamie taught last time. The world would say this is an offensive, backward, degrading message. But as believers, we need to see this as a beautiful message. The world needs to see women who've been so radically transformed by the gospel that they say, you know what, I set aside my will. I don't pursue what I want because now I want what Jesus wants. The world needs to see a church that says, I submit to Jesus. And that's what happens when we are in Christ. We change and we want to bow our knees. We want to be his slaves. And wives, we get to reflect that by submitting to our husbands. The way Jesus relates to his church is a beautiful picture, and that's what we get to portray to the world. We'll now turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to take a look beginning in verse 1, because you might hear this, and you might think, well, that's great for you. I know your husband. He's nice. (laughs) But you don't know my husband. He doesn't understand God's purpose for marriage. He doesn't love me like Christ loves the church. I mean, how would you like to be commanded to do that? Just think about that for a second. Maybe maybe you have a husband who's living in habitual sin. Maybe he's not a believer. So what then? The world says, not nah, got to be a two-way street, right? 50-50. But we need to know what God's word says. So 1 Peter 3.1 begins by saying, In 
the same way. That's referring back to 1 Peter 2, verse 18, about slaves being submissive to their masters, whether they're good and gentle or unreasonable, which makes it clear submission is not based on the worthiness of the one in authority. Verse 1 continues, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So now wives are commanded to be submissive to disobedient husbands in particular. Why? Because they might be won. Isn't that encouraging? This is a powerful, image-bearing submission that God has in mind. It may actually be his tool for winning the lost, disobedient husband. How? Well, the verse told us without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verses 2 through 4 describe this submissive behavior that God may use to win a husband. It says, as they observe your chaste and respectful Behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Submission is displayed in behavior that is chaste and respectful. Chaste means pure and holy. Respectful here and in Ephesians 5.33 is a reverent fear that draws you nearer to your husband, that leads you into humble, thankful appreciation of him because of the role that God has placed him in over you. You fear your husband out of reverence for Christ. And you can utterly and absolutely trust Christ that he is at work to lead you as you submit to and respect your husband. And what does the passage tell us is the source of that chaste and respectful behavior? Verse 4, it says it flows from the hidden person of the heart. It's not just acting submissive. It's a heart attitude. Now this should sound familiar because this is just another look at how discipline one enables us to live out discipline two. I mean, how else are we going to ever have a quiet and gentle spirit? We have got to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word. This passage points us right back to the heart and to the greatest relationship with God that we must not neglect. And it underscores our call to submission, not only when our husband is walking with the Lord, but every bit as much when a husband is disobedient to the Lord. Submission is non-negotiable. It is the way for a wife to display God's image in marriage. And it can be God's tool for winning the disobedient husband. Now, again, if we find any tension in hearing that, we need to stop and ask, where did that tension come from? It doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from his word. It comes from a culture and a society that left God behind a long time ago that doesn't want anybody to submit. If we let ourselves be bombarded by the world, if we're not soaking consistently in God's word, then we will struggle. We must shepherd our hearts into the presence of God 
through his word to get his message for us so that we can stand firm against what the godless culture would want us to believe. We need to turn off the competing voices. We need to open up this book. This is where we need to go. We need to bombard ourselves with this truth so that we get out into the world, the tables are turned, and we can say, you know what, that is a godless message. I am not going to buy into that. We can, that helps us just to throw off the world's thinking so that this, what we're hearing in God's word, no longer sounds old-fashioned, outdated, odd. It needs to sound right because it is right. It reflects who our God is, and it reflects how we relate to him. Submission is a powerful, unifying, self-giving display of God's image to a lost, God-hating world. Now you see you've got a couple other passages there in your notes. The second Timothy and Acts can be a great encouragement as you see the uh, encouragement to be faithful and bury God's image in marriage. When you see the example of how God used a faithful mother and grandmother um, to help train and prepare Timothy for ministry even when his father was not a believer. And then you'll see Titus 2 there. It has a lot to say for us about displaying God's image and the importance in the home and the church. And we'll have a whole lesson on that next time. So, what are the implications of God's design for displaying his image in marriage? And this is the back side of that second handout you have. Well, discipline one, we start out... Uh, with something that sounds very similar to where we started with God's implication for singleness. God's design calls for ongoing renewal of our minds, shepherding our hearts with God's word to fuel a submissive, quiet, and gentle spirit towards our husbands driven by reverence for Christ. Um, See, it just doesn't matter what season of life we're in. We need to shepherd our hearts with God's word in order to grasp and live out God's purpose for us in whatever season we're in. Number two, God's design keeps Jesus absolutely at the center of our marriage. As wives, we constantly need to keep Jesus in front of us so that we are displaying his image to our husbands, to our families, with our words, our deeds, our actions, our facial expressions, our tone of voice. See that we're putting Jesus right in the center of our marriage in all those things. Even if you're not married to a believer, you can keep Jesus right at the center of your marriage as you trust him in your submission. He is the one, ultimately, that you're serving. He is the one whose image that you get to bear. Number three, God's design grounds marriage in something that never changes. You know, our marriages have got to be grounded in something bigger than what we bring to the table, don't they? Um, People change, feelings change, circumstances change, our ability to handle conflict changes, but what never changes is God's great purpose for marriage. The marriage relationship was on God's mind when he thought about how he should be reflected to the world. Displaying his image of unity and love gives marriage a purpose bigger than ourselves. Discipline to the home, God's design sweetens every act of humble service in marriage, again, whether we're married to a believer or not. When we understand God's purpose for marriage, the opportunity to serve our spouse and to give of ourselves is no longer some sort of joyless task that we expect to be appreciated for or we expect something in return. That old self-grasping, you-come-serve-me attitude, that kind of thinking has been crucified. 
new things have come. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus. We live for others. And we do these acts of humble service for one another. Because as we live that way, God is made more visible. Because that's what the Godhead does. They empty themselves for one another in service to one another. Number five, for those who are not currently married, God's design excludes marrying or otherwise entering into a close relationship with a man who is not in Christ or to whom she would not be willing to submit biblically. See, when you see God's design, this makes perfect sense. Why would we unite ourselves with one who rejects reflecting the self-giving image of God? If the highest purpose for marrying is to is so that the husband and the wife together can be united and can sacrifice themselves in such a way that it displays Christ and the church, then uniting ourselves to a self-grasper defeats that purpose. It would obscure the image of God. And the wife's role in that image-bearing is to submit. So a Christian woman must not enter into that kind of serious relationship with one to whom she would not submit because it just wouldn't display God's image. Now, on the other hand, if you are married to a man who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, God's will for you is to display Christ to him and to your children. And as you serve them and treasure them, it's going to display what the gospel has done in your life. It is a kindness of God to your family to place right there in front of them that living testimony to his redeeming work. This is true to some extent for anyone living with those who don't believe. You get to joyfully follow Christ and joyfully um, glorify him by loving them. And the world gets to see the image of Christ in you as you do that. And see, it's just so like our Savior. He loved us while we were lost, right? And so you do that. You love the lost people in your home with the same love with which Christ has loved you. Number six, it restricts consideration of divorce to only those cases where it's biblically permissible. Even at that, it's only a last resort after one has exhaustively and earnestly sought restoration. There is probably not one of us in here who has not been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce. But if we understand God's purpose in marriage, it keeps us from basing our opinion about divorce on circumstances, on personalities, on our experiences, and it drives us to treasure marriage as something which God designed to display something very special about himself. We need to treasure marriage because God treasures marriage. Divorce is one of the most hostile statements we can make against God himself because divorce says the picture that marriage reflects about God is something I'm willing to shatter. Believers who embrace God's purpose for marriage will work until the end to save marriages. To say it differently, we work throughout all our marriage to savor marriage as God does, to recommit ourselves frequently to God's exalted purpose, because then marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. So, how do we think rightly then about divorce in our past, in our family, 
maybe our parents, our spouse, ourselves. Now, I want you to listen really carefully to this. Divorce is serious. But divorce is not a sin that is bigger than the gospel. Divorce is not bigger than the gospel. Knowing how much God values marriage gives us every reason to grieve over divorce. But, like anything else, we must look at it in light of the cross. Whether it's your divorce or it's someone else's divorce, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate the divorced believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate a believing child or parent or sister who is impacted by divorce from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Remember the grace realities. God's wrath has been poured out for all sin, for all who believe on Jesus. There's not a drop left. There are consequences for divorce. There are consequences for any sin, whether we sinned or whether we're sinned against. But as believers, we can rest we can be confident, we can confess sin, we can seek forgiveness, we forgive sin against us. And we can be confident that our loving God compels even those consequences to work for our good. And I just want to ask, do you believe that? It seems like divorce is sometimes an area where we have more trouble believing that, maybe in some other areas. But it's just as true. Okay, let's think about God's, the implications of God's design on ministry. And you're going to see, again, something repeated from the first side of the page, and that is that God's design underscores the importance of relationships with the body of Christ in fellowship, service, and other expressions of the New Testament one another's. In particular, it keeps small group involvement a priority. Um, this is just the same as it is for singleness because married people and single people are equally part of the body of Christ and we are members of one another. We need one another. Certainly, marriages that are being lived with a biblical purpose in view are good for the church. But it's also true that marriages don't get that way without brothers and sisters in Christ in the church encouraging them and spurring them on to continue to think biblically about that marriage. Number eight, God's design elevates the purpose and reason for marriage, that others might see a living picture of our great self-giving God. People have all kinds of reasons for getting married. Mine were small. They were very small. You know, it's all about happiness, right? I like him and he likes me. Sounds good. We think about security, we think about compatibility, and you know those are desirable things, but they have to be in subjection to the greatest purpose and reason for marriage, or they're going to fall short. Believers are not to get married just because we're lonely, or because we don't want to burn with passion. We get married because together we get this incredible privilege of reflecting in our relationship the unity and selfless love of the Godhead. That is God's design for marriage, that others might see a living picture of our great self-giving God. So I just want to wrap this up and, and step back and think about what we've seen over the last two weeks 
Um, We've taken a good look at what God's word says about his design and purpose for us as women and his design for us to live as women who bear his image in the body of Christ in various seasons. And our hope in all of this is that we would be spurred on to faithfulness in the smaller tasks. Cultivating that quiet and gentle spirit, serving diligently and cheerfully, submitting graciously, being godly women in every role that we have because we now better understand, I hope, the place that our our obedience has in God's bigger purpose of revealing himself to the world. And who doesn't want to be a part of that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness to save and to continue to teach us, to sanctify us. Lord, your word is is good, it's rich. How I pray that you would help each of us, Lord, to grab a hold of that which you want us to learn. Uh, Lord, don't let us just learn, don't let it just be in our head. Oh, Father, please transform us from the inside out to be more like your Son, that we might participate in your plan for us to display your image well. Father, as we go to discussion time, I pray that you would be pleased to grow our relationships with one another as the body of Christ, that we would display you well in that way as well. Thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.